1: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just eight ninety seven at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
0: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story.
1: Welcome to the Taken a Walk podcast, music history on foot. This is the podcast that covers music storytelling from authors, filmmakers, and musicians. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. On this episode, join host Buzz Knight with two visionaries in the media and entertainment business. They're here to talk about their new documentary, Reinventing Elvis, the 68 comeback from the great folks at Paramount Plus. Spencer Proffer is the film's producer, and he's also the founder of Meteor 17. He's one of the most successful documentary filmmakers of our time, most recently with the award-winning Don McLean doc, The Day the Music Died. He's also the man behind the John Coltrane documentary, Chasing Train, and a host of other great work. We're also joined by director, producer, and award-winning trailblazer Steve Binder. As the 68 Comeback Show was coming together, Steve Binder was the man right in the middle of this incredible story in music history. He stood up to Colonel Tom Parker, who ruled the Elvis Empire with an iron fist. He pushed Elvis to greatness as he built an environment of trust with the king. Let's join night with Spencer Proffer and Steve Binder next on Taking a Walk.
4: Well, gentlemen, it's an honor to have two of the most iconic figures in music history on Taking a Walk. I'd like to welcome Spencer Proffer and welcome Steve Binder. Congrats, on the triumphant release of your new Paramount Plus documentary. And uh, I'd like to say welcome back, Spencer, to taking a walk your past episode with me talking about your illustrious career and your Don McLean documentary it was a moment of, of serendipity for me as, as we've become pals, and I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, but Spencer, let me ask you first, how did you... And Steve Bender become pals years ago.
3: Very simple. First of all, you should put Steve's name before mine any time. We we became pals because he rejected me as a rock and roll artist when Steve was probably the most acclaimed television director in America, and he was hired by NBC to do the comeback special, which he'll tell you about with Elvis. And I uh, knew a lady who worked for Steve's partner, Bone's House, so I had an audition for Steve with my band and after two songs he blew me off <laughs> and then, he, in other words he didn't blow me off rudely he blew me off thinking I wasn't good enough he was right <laughs> and
5: then no the 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 truth of the story buzz is that uh once we had signed uh you know exclusively doing all the hits for the fifth dimension the association etc uh my partner uh who's brilliant uh, recording producer Bones Howe <clears throat> said Steve if the Beatles walked in here tomorrow we'd have to turn them down because our plate is full and we just can't take on any new artists and that's the only reason i turned spencer down <laughs> well Buzz,
3: I got to be honest, and this has nothing to do with this Paramount Plus, you know, doc, which I think is a, you know quintessential, and I'm very proud to be the producer of it next to my friend Steve. I wasn't that good, and years later, when Steve had a management company and he had Rick Springfield and he had Air Supply, and I was running ANR United Artists, he came to me and I had just finished uh, bringing you know signing the ELO connectivity. To releasing the records and was making Tina Turner's Ask Queen album. I was a rock guy, so I admitted that to Steve. I think he liked my candor. We've been friends ever since. That was 1974.
4: I love it. I love it. Well, Steve, there are so many storylines in this documentary. Certainly the the hero, meaning you, and the villain, and, <laughs> and Colonel Parker, and the star, and Elvis, but one of them also is your tremendous legacy, sir, as a pioneer and a trailblazer. Your, your work with the Freedom Spectacular, the Petula Clark uh, Special. Talk about how you were shaped to be a bold creator who has always had the courage of your conviction in your pursuit of justice.
5: I think it all really stems from your upbringing. I was one of the fortunate ones in life who had tremendous parents who wanted to give my uh, sister uh, uh, and myself all the opportunities that they never had uh, when they grew up. Uh, Both of my parents never had the opportunity to go to college. Uh, They insisted that uh, both my uh, sister and I uh, go to college even though I never graduated. I actually uh, got drafted in, in, the, uh, in the Army and uh, right in my senior year uh, at the University of Southern California. And uh, I was lucky enough when I uh, went into the military Uh, to get a job with the American Forces Network. And that's what wet my appetite of saying, hey, I like this business. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when I came home from uh, the military after two years, uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Pete Burness, who unfortunately passed away very young in life, but he was the film director of the Mr. Magoo cartoons. And uh, he was a friend of a few people that I met in Europe while I was announcing, like Jim Backus, who I later directed on Gilligan's Island, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, one thing just led to the other, and and the the door opened. Uh, I started my television career throwing pies uh, on a show uh, with a slapstick comic named Soupy Sales, That led to a relationship for a few years with Steve Allen, and I directed the late-night show with Steve uh, for Westinghouse. And when you do a show like that, you meet everybody in show business. You meet the people in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I just made such great relationships. And the one thing I learned uh, is, you know, don't try and bluff it. I mean, if you don't know something, say you don't know it and there are so many great people willing to help you uh, my my education in the entertainment industry really comes from the great people that I worked with on the camera crews, the audio uh, people, uh, you know, even the guys that held the cue cards, you know the what they used to call the idiot cards uh, and uh, so I just you know always had Great relationships with the people I worked with. Uh, many of them, uh, if they're still around, I'm still friends with them. And, uh, you know, I've had such an eclectic career over the years of doing so many different things from, you know, Give 'em Hell Harry, which uh, got an Academy Award nomination for James Whitmore, uh, to uh, Diana Ross and Central Park. I mean, you know the the shows were were just coming for my entire career thank goodness and for every person who said they didn't want to work with me thank god there was somebody who did and and you know Spencer became a very important part of my life because uh the reason we're talking today buzz to be honest with you is all due to Spencer uh, he's the one who uh, read a rough of of my uh, book on Elvis Presley, and he said, uh, "Steve, we've got to expand this. I mean, this is uh, you know not something you just want to leave and a few people read it. This is something that the whole world would be interested in." And he's the one who pushed for uh, every step of the way in terms of what's happening right now in, in my, you know, fourth quarter of my life, is, is so exciting, and, and I have so much to be thankful for with Spencer. And uh, so it's been a great ride. I mean, I have loved my work, and now I have the opportunity to spend all those missed, uh, you know, days, weeks, months, and years uh, that I basically were forced, to, you know, neglect my personal family. And I'm spending lots and lots of time right now with all my grandkids uh, in a combined marriage uh, with my wife of 27 years. Uh, We have nine grandchildren and a great-grandchild. And it's so exciting to see my, my life, my career, through their eyes. And uh, so I'm very, very grateful to, uh, to Spencer and so many people who have, you know, had the door open for me all through my entire life.
4: Spencer, when when you first met Steve years ago, um, did you see his amazing ability? Which, by the way, you also share in in managing artists with tremendous grace.
3: Well, the one thing I knew from people who I knew that knew Steve, other than my just you know direct one-on-one, was artists. Be it Diana Ross, be it you know, gosh, I don't know, Steve, you got to name me. I think for your Barry Manilow special, all his work that he did when he directed. I feel like I'm his manager, but I'm not. I get no commission. I just get love. But uh, when he did the Soul Train Awards, Hullabaloo, Blue, all his shows. I figured out it was as much about his personal connectivity to the talent more than just him being a suit. The furthest thing that Steve Bender is is a corporate executive. The thing that I be- I love and admire and feel mentored by my friendship with Steve is his ability to have artists revere him. When he introduced me to Diana Ross years ago after he produced that uh, Central Park special. I think it was the first Showtime special. A million people showed up. Diana said, I am so excited to meet you because of Steve Bender, and she starts raving. My first five minutes in talking to Diana Ross, who's her own superstar, is how great a guy Steve Bender is to work with, and I think he did five specials with her, including a big jazz thing. So the thing I relate most to Steve is because I do relate to the artists I work with musical these days when I make mini movies on their work is that Steve did the same thing in his lane. And that's kind of why I think we make great friends and great partners because we relate to the creatives more than we relate to P&L statements. We make money, but we make money doing good work.
5: You know, know, the the bottom of my biographies over the years is whatever you do in life, do it with passion. Passion is everything. And Spencer is one of the few people in my life who equals my, uh, you know, my passion for being passionate. And uh, it's it's a great relationship because, uh, you know, we have so much to contribute to each other. And uh, it's... You know anything and everything that I've done in my entire life and career is is a new experience and learning something new in each and every way uh, when I mentioned uh Gilligan's Island uh, I went on that show at at the uh, you know at the request basically of my personal manager at the time who uh, knew that I had an appetite for learning the technical side of the business and uh, television in general in in the days that I started there was no videotape even invented uh it was all based on if you wanted to record your show you had to be on kinescope which was nothing more than taking an electronic camera and putting up uh in front of your TV screen and recording off of the screen so it was terrible quality and uh I think it was Desi Arnaz who had the smarts to say when we do the Lucy shows, I'm shooting it on thirty five millimeter film. And and uh, that's why the quality is so fantastic whenever they do any of the reruns, which which I assume uh there's a Lucy show being played somewhere in the world uh twenty four seven and uh it was it was really a case of where uh you know, with all the new technology coming in, uh, when I started, I thought the shows were going to air one time uh, live, and that's the end of it. And uh, I think I now, due to the invention of videotape, uh, I must have at least uh, five or six uh, of my shows that are put out on DVDs. And, uh, you know, it, it, it never was expected in, in, my, in my lifetime. And uh, I think the, the future is so exciting, especially if we can figure out how to control uh, AI, artificial uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, you know, the future generations uh, are going to be just as excited about all the new things that that their societies are going to face and 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 deal with I mean, when you realize when I was a kid, there were no jet airplanes, there were no iphones uh the only uh fantasies were reading the comic strips, and there was a character named a detective named Dick Tracy who had a a watch on that you could actually use as a telephone, and I thought that's you know impossible, <laughs> and sure enough, I'm wearing a watch where you can make phone calls. You know whoever thought we would uh, not only get to the moon in spaceships but we're trying now for mars i mean that's all fantasy when you're growing up and you're a kid and uh so it's it's an exciting it's exciting to be alive uh you know I've had a great run um i've you know turned ninety years old this 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 year. And I'm still full of uh, enthusiasm for the future, and and uh, I live now through the eyes of my my grandkids and my own kids, and and uh, you know I, I'm fearful as well as being optimistic of what kind of world we're going to end up with, but uh, I'm also very optimistic.
4: Well, Steve, there are some storylines in here and some moments in history, and I'd like to ask you of a couple of them if you could take us back, because that's what the documentary does so brilliantly. It takes you back in time as if you were there as a fly on the wall. So, can you tell that infamous first Elvis meeting story, and uh, concurrently the first one with that Colonel Parker guy?
5: Well, i uh before I even begin telling you that, I I will say, uh, you know, uh, the only time I had any exposure to Elvis Presley, and this is before I was even entertaining getting into the business, was seeing him uh, perform live with uh, his original uh, trio, basically. Uh, Bill Black, who uh, was his original bass player and Scotty Moore, uh, his original guitarist, on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I was totally taken in, I was amused. Uh, I'd been uh, reading and hearing a lot of publicity on Elvis and how special he was, and he was, you know, kind of acknowledged as the king of rock and roll. And, uh, you know, most adults felt he was poisoning (laughs) The Youth of America, which I found amusing, and then uh, you know, he kind of disappeared and and uh, ended up uh, being a middle in the middle of the road uh, film star, uh, and all of those uh, early records that he recorded uh, by Lieber and Stoller and so forth uh he wasn't recording anymore he was basically singing songs in the soundtrack of the movies written by the 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 film screenwriters who had no experience whatsoever in rock and roll were probably older uh guys themselves and uh weren't relating to what really was going on in the youth culture of of America at that time and uh So the first time I met Elvis, uh, I was told uh, NBC might have a deal with with Elvis, uh, with the colonel, uh, but they weren't sure, and they just wanted to know after seeing a special that I did with Petula Clark and Harry Belafonte uh, that became very controversial because it was the first time in American variety television that a black Uh, singer, was touched by a white English woman, Uh, you know, she reached out in an emotional moment of an anti-war song that they were duetting, and touched Harry on the forearm, and all hell broke loose with the representative of the sponsor, and uh, as we... As a result, it became an international incident that picked up by Newsweek and Time magazine and i I had no idea at the time that anything like that was still going on in America. I was very naive and little did I know. and uh, i i I wanted to uh, when I was offered the Elvis Presley special. Uh, or to see if I was interested if uh, they had a deal with Elvis. Uh, I was not all that interested. I was a West Coast kid. I was into the Beach Boys, and we were producing the Fifth Dimension and the Association. I was working with Laura Nero. And uh, so it was really uh, a situation when I went out to meet the colonel to see if I qualified to meet Elvis Presley. Uh, I was expecting, uh, or I don't even know what I was expecting, but all I know is when I got to the MGM studios where the colonel had his offices, uh, he immediately started gifting me, and he made me a member of his uh, so-called phony, uh, uh, he had a, a, uh, called the snowman's club, and uh, I guess his definition is if you snowed somebody or you were great at, uh, and I'll just use the initials, at BSing, uh, then you qualified to be in the colonel's club. The initiation was free, but to get out of the club I think was like $100,000 or something (laughs) like that. And there was no club to begin with. It was strictly an honor. Uh, the colonel called himself the chief potentate of the club, and it had a uh, membership card and a booklet and and uh, all the rules of the club and so forth and so on. It was quite humorous. And he also gave me a, uh, a quarter-inch audio tape of 20 Christmas songs that was going to be uh, that year's uh, gift to disc jockeys all over America as Elvis's Christmas present. And uh, the colonel said to me, this is what uh, NBC and myself uh, want Elvis to do, and we want you to uh, execute it uh, if, if, if you do the show. And I went back to my office after leaving the colonel thinking this is never, ever going to happen. I mean, the colonel wants to turn Elvis into Andy Williams or Perry Como or, or you know, great middle-of-the-road artists, but certainly nowhere near uh, the definition of rock and roll and, and what Elvis Presley represented. So I went back to my office thinking, you know, well, I had a meeting, and I guess I'll never meet him. And next thing I know, uh, when I got back, my secretary said, hey, Steve, there's a message from uh, who turned out to be a great executive producer of the show, Bob Finkel, who at the same time was producing uh, the Jerry Lewis show for NBC and also the Phyllis Diller show for NBC. And he was assigned to be the executive producer on on the Elvis Presley special, if it happened. And Bob said, I don't know what you did to charm Colonel Parker, but he loves you. And Elvis will be at your office tomorrow at 4.30 in the afternoon. And on the clock, boy, he showed up and uh, walked into my office, uh, you know, staggeringly great looking. I mean, you know, I'm definitely a heterosexual and uh, happily married man, but, boy, you couldn't take your eyes off him when he walked in that door. And uh, he, all of a sudden, he looked around the, uh, the lobby and, and the hallway and uh, saw all of uh, our gold records from all the hits with the Fifth Dimension and the association. And uh, he told me uh, in our first meeting how comfortable he felt that he was finally going to be talking with somebody who spoke his language. And uh, the first question he asked me, uh <laughs> which is kind of humorous because uh I took him to my office and back alone and uh we sat down and he said so what do you think of my career <laughs> and without hesitating I said I think your career's in the toilet <laughs> and he looked at me for a split second and I didn't know how he was you know feeling I thought you know he was going to he wanted to strangle me But I was 100% wrong. Uh, He said, finally, somebody's speaking some truth to me. And uh, we just hit it off from day one. And uh, when he went home, uh, Priscilla had just uh, delivered uh, Lisa Marie. I think she was two months old at the time. Lisa Marie uh, and and Priscilla told me when when Elvis came home, to the rented house that he had for for Priscilla in uh, Beverly Hills, he said, "You know what? Uh, I don't care what the Colonel says. I got a gut feeling about this kid Binder, and I'm I'm going with him. I'm going to do whatever he asks me to do." And he lived up to it. I mean, for the entire production, you have to realize I only knew Elvis uh, when we started that first day on the '68 special to the end of it, because when it was over and I delivered the master and uh, there was a little incident where we were going to have beer and pizza as a little celebration at, at Bill Ballou, our costume director's home, our apartment in, in Hollywood, uh, that's the last time I ever saw or talked Elvis Presley. So my window of time with him really spanned about three or four months uh, from beginning to the very end.
4: Incredible, my God, incredible. Spencer, your documentaries, they find this absolutely mesmerizing and brilliant way to musically respect the past, but kind of pay it forward to the future in terms of how you you showcase uh, multi-genre influences and kind of weave them into the storyline. Can you talk about how you did this with this documentary?
3: I leave it to the guy who were the principals. One of my skills, assuming I have a few, is to be a vacuum cleaner magnet and let the creators who did the work, like the great artists. I'm telling you, when Paul Simon had a producer, Roy Halley, it was still Paul Simon's songs. And Mick Jagger performs. He's got producers, but at the end of the day, it's Mick Jagger. And same with Cat Stevens or anybody that's great. Carole King, etc. Steve Bender is one of those greats. And it was the responsibility and the good fortune I had in hiring John Scheinfeld, who's a fantastic documentary director, to pull this out. We spent lots of time with Steve. I've known Steve a long time. I had a very clear vision of what this could be. But I'm not a director. director directed a lot of videos, but I'm not a documentary or a film director. My job is to provide the opportunity for them be as brilliant as they are. John Sheinfeld did a brilliant job. He's a very, very fine director, but it's all about Steve Bender. This isn't the Elvis documentary. It's Steve's and Elvis was the vehicle by which Steve exerted hit not exerted it's the wrong word, but he showcased his brilliance in providing a platform for Elvis to be Elvis. That's what we did with the Don McLean doc. That's what I'm doing with numerous Projects that are forthcoming, I really have to hand it to the creators to be who they are. My job is to pull it out of them.
5: You know, Buzz, I'm going to tell you a story that I haven't told very many people ever. But one of the great things that happened on the special is when I was with Elvis and I told him uh, basically with my writers, uh, you know, what we wanted to do with him. Which was, you know, uh, miles away from doing a Christmas special, which had already been locked in by uh, the, the head of NBC, Tom Sarnoff, and Colonel Parker. That was the show they they were wanted to do and were thought they were doing until I entered the picture. But the great story is that I said in that big second meeting with Elvis that I had, I said Elvis, This is going to be strange for you because you're leaving your security blanket at the Elvis Presley estate, and you're going to join me. I had done two other specials with the same crew, Bill Ballou, the the brilliant costume designer, uh, Gene McAvoy, the art director, and so forth and so on, Alan Bly and Chris Beard, the the writers. And uh, I said, you know, is there anybody uh, that you would like to me to put on the staff of the show because everybody you're going to be meeting will be people you'd never met before. And they're, they're all new. And you just got to trust me, uh, that, that this is my family. These, these are the people that I love working with. And I'd accumulated this, this gang, uh, starting back, uh, on a show called Hullabaloo that I did in 1965, I believe it was for NBC. And, uh, You know uh, I had met a lot of the people that to this day I'm still friendly with if they're still alive and uh, you know we were we were we were so good that unfortunately I couldn't keep them because they were so talented like Chris uh, Beard and Alan Bly went on to do the Andy Williams show and the Smothers Brothers show and so forth they just as producers themselves and uh, all of the people on that uh, crew grew their careers. But the story is, Elvis said there's only one person that I I would feel comfortable with, and that's putting Billy Strange uh, on as my musical director. Well, I had been working since Hullabaloo and uh, did a Leslie Uggams, who was starring on Broadway uh, special and Petula Clark special, uh, with with a young man uh, named Billy Goldenberg. And uh, Billy was the dance arranger for the David Winters dancers uh, on Hullabaloo, and I just thought he was so talented. And uh, so that's who I really wanted to do Elvis with, but uh, I agreed to hire Billy Strange uh, because Elvis wanted him, uh, and I felt it would be a good security blanket for Elvis. Well, as it turned out, Billy Strange had just had uh, a major success with Nancy Sinatra, and they had produced a record called Boots Are Made for Walking. And the record company was screaming at Billy, you got to get an album out, you got to record at least nine more songs. So he was all tied up, and every time I called him to say, you know, Elvis is getting ready to start rehearsals, do you have music for me? And he said, don't worry, you know, it'll be there. And as every day went by, I got more and more nervous, and I finally called Billy Strange, and I said, Billy, if I don't have uh, lead sheets and piano parts for Elvis by this Monday, uh, I'm going to fire you. And he said, you can't fire me. And I said, why? He said, because I know Elvis a lot better than you know Elvis, and if he heard that you fired me, you'd be the one that would be fired, and that's the way we ended it. And Monday came around, I had no music, and I called uh, Bob Finkel, my executive producer, and I said, I'm going to fire Billy Strange. And uh, he said, if you you think you know what you're doing, go ahead and do what you got to do. So I fired him, and I called Billy Goldenberg in New York, and I said, Billy, can you... Please, you know, get on an airplane this, this afternoon or this evening and come. I need you to, to be the music director of the Elvis Presley special. And thank God Billy did it. But the brilliance of Billy Goldenberg is that he took all those old songs of Elvis and he didn't make them sound old. He updated all the arrangements. And it sounded big and contemporary, and Elvis loved it. In fact, Elvis said uh, right before we started our first recording session, he said, Steve, uh, you know, he walked in the studio and he saw 35 musicians of the greatest studio musicians in Hollywood. And he said, Steve, if I don't like any of the Billy Goldenberg arrangements or the music I hear, you have to promise me to send everybody home and just keep the rhythm section. And I promised him I would do that. And Elvis walked back in the studio. He stood next to Billy Goldenberg, and they immediately bonded. And and Elvis even hired Billy to do "Change a Habit" with Mary Tyler Moore, the movie. Uh, after we finished the '68 special, and and Billy brought so much to that special when it came to the sound of the rock and roll soundtrack.
4: Steve, when you were in the in the midst of the. 68 Comeback Special. You were with Elvis at a dark period in American history when uh, when Bobby Kennedy uh, had been assassinated. Um, what was that moment like?
5: It was, uh, you know, I don't want to underplay it or overplay it. Uh, we were all, uh, we used to go to my offices on the Sunset Strip to rehearse Elvis before we went to NBC to start uh, rehearsals uh, in earnest. and we uh, we're, we're uh, the main purpose was for Billy Goldenberg to teach Elvis all the new material for the show and so forth. And we're all, uh, you know, just just have we'd start at four in the afternoon or four thirty, and we'd work until you know midnight or or one in the morning on on a normal uh, day. And uh, this particular uh, evening, uh, we were in the piano room rehearsing uh, some of the music, and all of a sudden we heard a big commotion from another office that I had, which had a television set uh, that was on. And so we all got up. It was, it was Elvis, uh, Earl Brown, our, our uh, choir director, uh, Billy Goldenberg, myself, and I think Alan uh, and Chris, our writers, were there as well. And we all piled into the TV room, and live on television we watched, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy was shot by Sirhan Sirhan. And uh, you know, we we ended up spending the entire night in, in, until the sun came up in the morning not talking about the show, but talking about what's going on in our country. I mean, Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, all these these you know, gunshots and and murders and so forth, and uh, you know, and the uh, Vietnam War was going on in full rage and so forth. So it was really eerie, and and it was amazing to me to know how much Elvis had already studied all that was going on historically in the United States. And he was a real scholar when it came to, uh, you know, what was uh, going on with these assassinations at the highest level of our government. And, uh, you know, and I, I think it had a lot to do to bond all of us with Elvis, where all the rumors of, you know, him being a racist or a redneck or whatever were completely dispelled. I mean, I liked the guy from beginning to end. That was my experience with him. Uh, I found him totally. Uh, you know, our our cast on the on the comeback special was kind of a United Nations on wheels. <laughs> And we had uh, a black choreographer, a Puerto Rican choreographer. We had, uh, you know, Asian dancers. Uh, uh, we were a, a mixed company, and it was kind of fun. And Elvis didn't balk at anything. We had we featured him in the gospel segment with the Blossoms, three you know beautiful young black ladies, and uh, they they you know were right alongside of him. And he embraced them. I mean, I never saw any racism coming from Elvis. I I found uh, every time we got into any conversation other than show business where we talked about our personal lives, uh, I found him, you know, very open and liberal. Um, I'm one of those, unfortunately, I guess to many, (laughs) screaming liberals who, who believe, as Earl Brown wrote in his song, If I Can Dream, you know, uh, I want to live in a land where where uh, your brothers and sisters walk hand in hand. And uh, that, that's that been my feeling ab- about uh, the country and so forth. And I was appalled because I kept running into, not on purpose, but all these racist people and edicts. And, and I understand in the South at that time, uh, you know, theater owners were, we're literally uh taking a, a scissors and cutting out the black actors in in white movies basically and uh you know it, it, i just came from a very uh uh liberal family where we treated everybody by the by basically the golden rule you know you treat everybody as they treat you I worked in my as a kid I worked in my dad's gas station it was a, a truck station so we had quite a few employees but most of them were either black or Latino or or whatever and you know they were my buddies I mean I didn't think of them as being different from anybody else
4: I'd like to close with a question for both of you, Uh, first, Spencer, and then for you, Steve, Um, same question. It's a time of uh, tremendous division today. And uh, Spencer, can you talk about how you feel this documentary um, about the healing and unifying power of music is more important than ever today?
3: Well, I think Steve's vision of everything being colorblind, being race blind, being religious blind is right. With where the world could be and should be. Um, Steve's very close friend Mike Stoller wrote a song with uh, Jerry Lieber and Benny King called "Stand By Me," which I am going to make a definitive uh, film about how that song speaks to the world. And when Biden went to stand next to Zelensky, when the South Koreans decided to contribute a lot of money to stand next to uh, Ukraine in their you know plight, And that really kind of is personified by the spirit of Stand By Me, which is the spirit of what Steve has done. What this documentary does is it just shows that good music, good vision, and, and, you know, Steve being able to put people in the round, let Elvis jam with his guys, and capturing it handheld. I think that's timeless, but I think that's good for all races, all colors. We have a salsa version of Blue Suede Shoes performed by Mafio. We have Darius Rucker, who's a brilliant black crossover artist doing his rendition of Heartbreak Hotel. And when Darius speaks, in the dock, about how there was a moment in time when he saw this as a kid growing up, it really touched him. And he's a superstar today, he's a three-time Grammy winner, and yet he is a human being. So I'm a true big believer that what Steve did and what Elvis did has transcended time, and I think music travels, I think Father and Son by Cat Stevens, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by uh, Otis Redding and Steve Cropper, these all are songs and things that transcend race and time and i think a lot of it started with what steve did with the um patula clark special with harry belafonte what steve did here and i'm just very very proud to be the guy to help bring this to the world so if that's any kind of a sign off that's my opinion i'm sure steve has even a more articulate version
5: <laughs> it's hard to to out articulate you spencer no my my feeling is that, and I've always felt this as a little kid before I even entertained getting into the entertainment business itself, you know the first album that I ever got, which I suggest that you know your listeners get a copy of and listen to it. this was played in the nineteen thirties on c b s it, it was written. Uh, by somebody I got to meet, uh, Earl Robinson, who wrote the house I live in that uh, Frank Sinatra made famous. And uh, he was a real humanitarian. His family was in the lumber business up in uh, Washington, the state of Washington. It, it was uh, The song was the Ballad for Americans. And I remember wearing out the 78 RPM disc it came uh, with three uh, discs in the set, and uh, the whole premise was, "Hey, the narrator, hey, hey, buddy, are you an American?" And then he'd go into all these uh, verses of "Am I an American?" and he'd deal with religion and patriotism and so forth. And there was a choir constantly in the in the background. You know, questioning his his Americanism, his 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 uh, liberalism, and so forth. I love that album. It actually uh, played uh, on CBS with the CBS orchestra in the '30s, and I think it jammed the the uh, phone lines at CBS for hours uh, from people who responded to that piece of music. I think Odetta also recorded uh, a version of it, and. It, it was really a case of where, to this day, as much as I love other forms of music, and you got to be exposed to those kind of things. And thank God, my non-college parents knew enough to to expose my sister and I to so many forms of of music and and the arts. To me, the only universal language that can be understood no matter what language you speak in your native tongue and so forth, uh, is music. Music translates uh, emotions and feelings, and uh, whether you understand the words or you don't of the lyricists, there's just something about it that that can stir my soul. Uh, I, get, I, I can go to a symphony orchestra, listen to uh you know, Tchaikovsky, uh, the War of 1812 or something, and get goosebumps. And I know they use that piece of music uh, July 4th, you know, when they shoot out the fireworks and everything. That's a piece of music that that relates to it. But the point is that it, it stirs your soul. It makes you feel. It brings us all together. I'm a great believer, and and when I got into television, I realized how little – anybody in television paid to 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 the music Uh, they were all about this is about the picture and uh, the soundtrack doesn't matter well I couldn't disagree with them more and that's why I I partnered with with uh, a record producer because I felt even now and let's get back to the Elvis Presley special I think that soundtrack is equally as important to the success of the special, I look at it today and I say, you know what? I could have I could have shot that last month. I, I, it, it it didn't need to be done fifty some years ago. It's not dated in any way, shape or form. And and the driver to the whole thing is the soundtrack, is the music, and it, it's. Uh, you know, I think artists get inspired by by the music. You know, I was listening the other day to uh, an old Bobby Darin uh, album with Mac the Knife and, and all those great tunes, but really caught my attention and my ear were the arrangements to the music and, and the orchestra's uh, soundtrack behind his his single success and so forth. So I I just can't say enough about, you know... What music does to me and my soul.
4: Well, thanks for uh, chilling my soul in a beautiful way. I can't wait for everyone to see this documentary. Uh, it's just tremendous. It's the reinvention of Elvis, the 68 comeback special, Paramount Plus. I can't thank you enough, Steve Binder and Spencer Proffer, for being on the Taking a Walk podcast.
5: Thank you, Buzz. It's been a pleasure from my point
3: of view. Buzz, you're a rock star. I appreciate you. And yes, I do want the world to hear it. And I want them to feel what Steve Binder feels because that's what we should, as a society and as a world, that's what we should feel.
1: Thank you, gentlemen. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.